love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think I said 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Uh, we will be beginning in verse 12. Uh, leading up to this point, Paul has finished his instruction about spiritual gifts and the use of spiritual gifts within the local church. Spiritual gifts are to be used by those in the local church to edify one another. Too often they are practiced to edify self, and that is the very thing Paul is condemning in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and then leading up to this point, uh, there is a disagreement in the local church at Corinth about the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. So Paul is correcting this false doctrine. He is defending the doctrine of the resurrection in our own day. There are many people who do not believe in the resurrection, either of Christ or of us at the end of the age. And Paul is addressing this explicitly uh, to have Christian belief, to have sound doctrine to believe in agreement with what the Bible claims and what Jesus claimed, what the Old Testament prophets claimed, what was written in the law, we must believe in a resurrection. Christ first uh, brings out the truth through Paul as he inspires Paul. He brings out this truth that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. There are more than 500 witnesses, and Paul says this, there are more than 500 witnesses. They're still living as Paul is writing, so he's encouraging the church. You can go ask them if you want. They really saw Jesus after his crucifixion. Some of them touched Jesus, and Paul himself as one untimely born, as one who's late to the party, said, I even saw the resurrected Jesus. And we know when we read through the books of, book of Acts, he, he saw Jesus on his way to Damascus. And now Paul applies the truth of Christ's resurrection after affirming that and establishing that in testimonial evidence. He applies the truth of Christ's resurrection. We'll read verses 12 through 19 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, meaningless. Your faith is also vain, meaningless. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Well, the big idea as we look at this text, just starting out, the very first thing we see represented by, by all the verses we just read. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, and if we will not be raised from the dead, the faith we practice, our coming together, our gathering as a local church body, our praying and our Bible study, and all the time that we put into knowing about Christ and knowing Christ more. It's all, it's all meaningless if there is no resurrection. 
Why is it meaningless if there is no resurrection? Well, if there is no resurrection, then there is no afterlife, so to speak. When we die, we are dead, and nothing we did on this earth matters at all. But our belief is not that there is no resurrection. Our belief is that there is a resurrection, the very resurrection that Paul is defending by his argumentation here. And so there is a reason to live, and there is a reason to try, and there is a reason to do well in this life and to seek after Christ and to, and to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. That There is a reason for that. There is an afterlife. There is a resurrection. We'll walk through this verse by verse like we are in the habit of doing. Verse 12, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So here we see the question, here we see the controversy in the local church at Corinth. Uh, the same controversy that exists today, uh, there are many groups who claim that no, Christ did not rise from the dead, and there are groups who claim, even groups who refer to themselves as Christian, who claim that there is no resurrection for us. And so this controversy has not dissipated over time. Um, groups still believe that there is no resurrection, particularly materialists who believe that the material world is all that we have and natural law is all that we have. And if there is a God, he must be a deistic sort of God. There is no resurrection. So the Bible addresses this question directly. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, this is verse 13, not even Christ has been raised. Now, Paul has already established we know Christ is raised because people saw him. People experienced him in his bodily form after his crucifixion. And you even ask uh, anybody who studies history today or read academic articles concerning the historicity of the resurrection of Christ, and many of them will not claim that Christ absolutely re re raised from the dead, that he absolutely resurrected. But none of them can possibly deny that people experienced Christ and believed Christ to be resurrected after his crucifixion during that time because there is such strong testimonial Evidence And Paul has already established this evidence for us and for the Corinthians. He says here, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Well, he's working backwards, using his inductive reasoning here, right? Well, if there is no power over death, how can Christ possibly be raised from the dead? So there he takes the claim, right? There is no resurrection for us, as insinuated. There is no resurrection. Uses inductive reasoning to develop a principle, right? People don't come back from the dead. And if people don't come back from the dead, now deductive reasoning going down from that principle. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ couldn't have been raised, right? As part of Paul's argumentation, he trained in Hellenistic philosophy, and we see it come out here. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching has in, is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. What does it mean if Christ has not been raised from the dead? Well, first, it means that he does not have power over death. 
the very thing that we hope in him for, right? The very thing we teach that our faith leads to is resurrection from the dead, a coming back to life, a living forever, eternal life. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. He said it is, it is meaningless. Now, Paul has already addressed those preachers and teachers and churches who speak into the air, who speak without meaning, who speak to exalt self. He's already addressed that in this book. But now he says, if Christ has not been raised, then even our preaching is in vain. Talking about himself, talking about Sosthenes, who co-wrote this letter with him, talking about the apostles. Our preaching is in vain. And talking to the local church, your faith is also in vain if Christ did not literally come back from the dead, if he was not literally raised back to life. And this is in line with what Christ taught. Lest we believe that Paul is teaching something Christ did not already teach. Remember, Paul, Paul has already established, when I teach you, when I write you letters, when I preach to you, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, I apply these things figuratively to myself so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. Paul here is not exceeding what is written. From from, from Abraham taking his son Isaac to the altar to sacrifice him. From God's promise to Eve then also to Abraham and to Noah. And the very law we see typified death and resurrection. The prophets foretell of one who would come and be crushed for our iniquity. And be raised from the dead. So it's there in the prophets too. Foretold. So it is typified in the law. Is foretold in the prophets. And is explained in the gospels. And in John chapter 6. Jesus teaches. Jesus himself. Teaches that all those the father gives him. He will lose none of them. I find the language there in John chapter 6 very interesting. Because first he says, nothing of what the Father gives me I will lose, but I will raise it up on the last day. And then he goes from talking about things, material things, to talking about people. Right? Everybody who is in Christ will be raised from the dead. And Christ teaches it explicitly. Like he's redeeming the material universe. Like that's part of his plan all along. Thing, everything the Father has given me, in Matthew 28, that's everything. I, I, I have dominion now. I have authority over, over everything in heaven and on earth. He says that in Matthew 28. In John chapter 6, everything the Father gives me, I'll raise it up. I am redeeming it, not destroying it, redeeming it. It's the, it's the crux of our faith. That's the promise of biblical Christianity. And then everybody who believes in Christ sincerely Submitting to Christ will be raised up on the last day. And then Christ himself, he gave his life to atone for sin, the substitutionary atonement. And then he was raised from the dead to prove that he has authority and victory over death and over sin. Which means he has the authority to share that victory with those the Father has given him if we use the language in John chapter 6. Y'all, this is power. 
Well, we ask ourselves sometimes, like, is it, is it worth it to follow Christ? I mean, like, really? Uh, we have given ourselves over to lives of, of suffering and persecution and of, and of giving everything up for the sake of knowing Christ and of, and of giving up our finances, of giving up our pursuit of, of money and hedonistic pleasure in this life. We have given that up for the sake of knowing Christ. And the question comes to mind, like, is, is this worth it? Especially when, like, something bad happens in life. Or we can't pay bills or whatever because of the things we are doing for the kingdom of Christ. And in our prayers, we say, God, will you please provide? God, will you please remove this burden, this suffering, this persecution from my life? Is it worth it? And I think the answer of Scripture is, well, has Christ risen from the dead? If he has, then our faith and everything we endure for the sake of the gospel is worth it. But if Christ has not risen from the dead, if he has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You're better off doing something else. Verse 15, moreover, Paul continues his argumentation. His argumentation is put in a negative format here, which Paul does often. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. If Christ has not been raised, we, we are lying about who God is, about what God is doing. We are bearing false witness about him because we, we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. There Paul making his point a second time. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. What did the, what did the death of Christ accomplish? Well, the death accomplished the atoning sacrifice the final perfect lamb, unblemished. Christ died in our place for our sin because people could not do it. You think about the trajectory of human history, the trajectory of the biblical story. In the beginning, God creates everything. And the crown of his creation, the pinnacle of his creation is humankind. God creates humankind in his image. The humankind can't be God, right? God didn't create himself. He, he created an, an image. A species is like him in some way. And it doesn't even like apply to physical appearance because God didn't have a physical appearance at that time, right? No, he gave people a physiology that would best reflect who he is in his divinity and in his spirit down to the depths of his of his. We call it the transcendent trinity. And he gave people a rule. Don't eat from this certain tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if humanity is not God, if humanity is the image of God, it's 
does humanity have the righteousness of God or does it have the image of God's righteousness? Well, the image, the image of God's righteousness. Not God's righteousness itself, because then we would, we would be God, not merely the image of God. Well, what's the thing about the image of God's righteousness? It's not God's righteousness, so it is, it is not perfect. People, by their nature, by the way they were designed, the imago Dei, the image of God, they, they sought to be righteous on their own. Why? Because God is righteous on his own. Like, this is an accidental part of God's design. It's almost as if God is sovereign and he creates things the way he does on purpose. Right? So man being self-righteous, like Paul writes in the book of Romans, sought for themselves to be righteous, sought for themselves to gain knowledge, sought for themselves to be good rather than evil. And in seeking this, they tried to usurp the position of God who is the only righteous one revealed in Scripture. So the very law that God gave revealed the unrighteousness of humanity by the nature of humanity. And people sinned against God because they were trying to what? Be God. Be self-righteous, self-aware. But God's response was not to immediately kill people and start over. Instead, he offered grace, even issued a promise. Eve, you are, the, you are the mother of the living. From you, seed will come who will trample the serpent who led you astray. A promise. Not condemnation, a promise. A few generations following that, God observed humanity, tested humanity, saw that humanity left to its own devices without law, without order, without a Messiah. Their hearts were only wicked all the time. So he flooded the world, rescuing for himself one family from which a righteous nation would emerge. The flood subsided and God saw everything. He made a covenant with creation. He made a covenant with Noah, signified by the rainbow we see every time light refracts just the right way in our atmosphere, right? This is a sign to God so that God sees from the heavens, remember the covenant he made with all creation and with Noah first in Genesis chapter 8, I will never again destroy the world. He's interested in renewing it now. And then repeated in chapter 9, I will never again destroy the world by sending floodwaters upon it. He phrases it both ways there in the text. God's promise remains to this day, as testified about in the law. And then the prophets who foretold a Messiah who would be God, the child of God. A child will be born to us, Isaiah chapter 9. His name will be Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And Christ died, the perfect atonement for sin in our place. He is righteous and those who are in him are clothed with his righteousness no longer their own so that we do not suffer the same fate of adam and eve having to be simply given over to our self-righteousness 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. I want to notice something here about verse 17. Those who are without Christ, who are not covered by the crucifixion and resurrection, those go together. Because if Christ died for our sins but was never raised from the dead, right? Then he doesn't have the power we thought he had when he supposedly gave his life to die for sin. But if he did, in reality, die to atone for the sins of the world, he proves he has authority to do that when he comes back from the grave. And so there is the atonement, and then there is the authority, the victory that he has. But if he has not been raised, you're still in your sins. This means everybody apart from Christ, or if Christ has not been raised, they're still in their sins. Now we consider the, the, the converse of that, right? If Christ has been raised... Your faith is not worthless. You are not still in your sins. There's a very important theological truth here. And this, this means everything for the way we live and, and the way we see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And the way we, the way we see even unhealthy local congregations and, and the way we see our wives and our children and and our children's friends and other families in our community this means everything for the way we see others it wasn't that long ago i was sitting with with a friend whose theology is very sound that's up here right theology is very sound Yeah. When he started talking about the church, some theology very sound, started talking about the church of Jesus Christ, only ever had ugly things to say about the church. Well, the church, what a... What a wretched, intolerable lot. I mean, those are his exact words. Right? Well, no doubt. Proper theology, proper belief demands that in our nature we are wretched people. Depraved. When Christ comes in, what happens? We're given a new heart. Redeemed. Christ's sacrifice is applied to us. We are awakened. In our spirit, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, transformed. We are brought out of our sins, and we can confidently make this claim. Why? Because Christ has authority over sin, and he has authority over, over death. And Paul's claim here, like, if you're still in your sins, if you're still, if you're still just completely wretched, what is your faith actually accomplishing in your life? No, Christ has been raised. If you are in him, if you believe in him, you are not still in your sins. You might still be depraved because you can't do anything without Christ still. But what are we doing seeing ourselves still as just wretched, dark human beings with still this, this heart that is deflated or stoned? 
And why do we see others who are in Christ that way? And even unhealthy local churches, why do we look at them and point fingers and say, you bunch of wretched fools? Like, why do we do that? If we are in Christ, we are no longer in our sins. And that doesn't mean I, I don't sin anymore. No, I definitely still sin, right? And I think we all do. I think we will until the resurrection, which is what we're talking about, right? We're no longer in that sin. The law of God really is being written upon our hearts and we, we really do hunger and we thirst for righteousness such that when we do sin, like it bothers me now. Before I knew Christ, it didn't bother me when I sinned. I might have pretended it bothered me because I was around Christian folks, right? But it didn't bother me when I sinned before Christ. Now if I sin, I'm like, oh my gosh. I really am a terrible person. And then Christ comes in and he reminds me, you are clothed in my righteousness now, and you are forgiven, and you are redeemed. And that is wonderful, and I hope that serves as some encouragement for the saints this morning. And being hopefully edified and hopefully encouraged, we come back to Paul's argument. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Like, this is essential to biblical Christian faith, belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, belief that you are redeemed, knowledge that you are redeemed, and, 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 and hope in the future resurrection, our future resurrection. Christ already did that, right? Then, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Like, if there is no resurrection... Where do you think those who have gone before us are? Paul says they're gone. Christ fulfilled the, the prophets, proving he was Messiah. So if he is Messiah and he did not raise from the dead, he doesn't have authority to get your loved ones into the presence of the Father. Those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, they... They have perished. Even if they believed in Christ, it didn't do anything for them. It's, it's meaningless, worthless, and we have no hope if Christ didn't rise from the grave. If we have hoped in Christ, verse 19, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied because our gathering is worthless, meaningless. And you wonder why so many people observe religion today or observe what some teach as the biblical worldview and see it as meaningless and see gathering as the church body as as meaningless it's because we have contrived some sort of gospel that is not the gospel of scripture the gospel that has no power We teach people to hope in Christ in this life only. And I think the church should hear this. We teach people to believe in Christ in this life only when we teach them that they must muster up enough self-control or enough ambition or enough zeal to serve the Lord unwaveringly and be perfectly submissive to the Lord all the time in order to somehow earn salvation or to gain prosperity back from God in this life. 
And I think people see right through it. And the church is a joke because the church isn't teaching what Scripture teaches. We hear about the resurrection. The belief is not for this life only. Our hope is a resurrection. And our hope is in Christ. And notice what the text says. Like, Christ can do this because he has already defeated sin. And Ken, you're going to love this one. He has already defeated death. Yeah? And it's because he has already won the victory. It's not some future ethereal victory that maybe he'll win after some seven-year period. Okay? Already. Already won. That's what Paul is getting at here. Like, you have reason to live in the victory of the cross and in the victory of the resurrection. And this is real. If it's not, you silly Christians gathering on Sunday, you're most to be pitied of all men. All, all people. The Christian worldview, by Christian worldview, I mean biblical worldview, is the only worldview that gives us a story about God creating for His glory alone and God orchestrating the events of human history in such a way that He alone is glorified. And that he alone saves his people, those whom the Father has given to Christ, if we go back to John chapter 6, right? The Bible is the only book that gives us an atonement for sin. Muhammad didn't die for Muslims, but he did die. He didn't come back. I find it ironic that you read through the Quran. It's like chapter 19 somewhere. You read through the Quran and Jesus there in the Quran, in the, in the Quranic story, utters the words. About his own resurrection. And Muslims don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, but it's there, right? It's like God left just enough evidence in that religion to point people to Jesus. And the Quran even calls Jesus Messiah. Ironic. And so in order for Muslims to understand the Quran, they must read the Bible and understand the Bible, what Jesus actually taught concerning his own death, burial, and resurrection in order to understand just that one verse even in the Quran where Jesus mentions his own resurrection. But the Bible is the only worldview that doesn't tell us be good enough. That's it. Even in the law, when God gave the law, he said you won't be able to keep it. This is Deuteronomy like chapter 30 through 32. Like, keep the law. Yes, but you won't be able to do it. So I'll send a Messiah. I will rescue you. Like, from... From the very first five books onwards, like that's the promise, and the Bible's the only book that does that. But we, in our self-righteousness, we ignore this in favor of everything else. 99% of religion in the world, worldview in the world, is the same. The Bible is that 1%. And it's 
logical. It makes sense. No, I can't rescue myself. I need a Savior. And that Savior is Christ. And all that is required of me is the sin that makes salvation necessary. Amen? Amen. Amen. I hope you are encouraged this morning. We'll get into exactly what the resurrection means as we continue to move through the text because Paul is going to define it. That's a teaser for next week. So there you go. Brother, you want to...